to Your Team with Sue and Steph. I'm Sue. And I'm Steph. And we are the co-founders and owners of Your Teen Media, the resource for parenting tweens and teens. And today, we're excited to be talking with Dr. Michael Rich, also known as the Mediatrician, about media, technology, and the impact of both on teens. But before we talk to him, we are going to talk about, well, we learned a lot from him, and we also learned a lot about, eh, also what we would have done differently. So, Steph, I think during this interview, we both had this um, like really big reaction when the question was about parental controls. And he said, no teen, no kid wants to be controlled by their parents. Let's change the narrative and call it parental engagement. And we were both like, whoa. <laughs> that feels different. <laughs> well, not only did it feel different to me, but it felt like almost one more job. Like parental controls is outsourcing the worry. And his point, he talks about how, you know, people put on parental controls, but it really doesn't ensure your kid's safety. It's like saying to your kid, text me when you get there. <laughs> like something exactly. could easily happen. Our driving conversation. Yeah. Like what does that actually get you? I mean, it's peace of mind for the worried, but it doesn't prevent the problem. So what did you take away from the idea of parental engagement? I took away two things. One is great, another job. <laughs> and, um, and then less snarky was, can I be engaged somehow it not feel like a job? So I was trying to figure out like what that space is. I would say I did it better in some spaces than others, but I feel like that's, it's almost like, um, if I had a few rules that maybe I lived by with the kids, that these were going to be the rules. Like I felt like if I could go back, which kind of relates to a driving conversation we had recently, if I could go back and make a few rules with the kid, maybe that could define the engagement. Does that make sense? Like this is how we're going to do it in our house and revisit those. And I think they're going to be different for every family. I think engagement engagement gives you, I guess to me, it gave me like some of that latitude to put our values as a family in place. Well, so it's interesting because a lot of people talk about having, you know, a contract with your kids and you sit around and you do it together with them. It's not an, you don't impose it, you, you negotiate it, you do it together like you're writing a contract. But I was thinking about it and thinking, it's amazing how much we get an F in my house on this idea of parental engagement around technology, we didn't monitor. We didn't monitor much of anything, their grades, their anything. But we also didn't engage them a bit with like, what are you doing? Teach us what you're doing. We just kind of commented in that like maybe passive aggressive way, like on your phone an awful lot, you know, like kind of these, these things that didn't actually do anything. And, you know, also I think I'm learning how to be better at it also. So I want to say like, well, in terms of snarky and handling it poorly, I just remember driving my kids and feeling like a chauffeur, chauffeur and they, I'd be talking to them and see them on their phones. And I really felt like insulted. I just felt super insulted. And so I walked away feeling insulted because I had no tools. I didn't want to get into it. I didn't want to have a fight about like, put your phone down. And so I just felt insulted which I'm sure they knew I felt insulted. The other thing, well, when you just said like you were trying to learn it too, I was thinking how it has changed so much. So if you look back at 
So I have to think, did your oldest have a phone? Your oldest must have had a phone in high school, right? Yeah, she had a phone in middle school, actually. Things have changed so much now and people know more and there's been more time to look at it. But I would also say that that I sucked at it, nevertheless. Like, you know, just the idea of saying to my kid at another point in time, it just feels so yucky to me to be picking you up and, and you know, wanting to have a conversation and, and you're on your phone. Instead, I just was mad, basically. I just had this conversation with another mom yesterday. Just that passive aggressive mad, being mad. Like, <laughs> and it's so hard because it does feel insulting. But I really do think we, we have learned so much about phones and social and we society, we sue and staffing your team, right? So, so both of those. Maybe I'm wrong. I feel like the parents whose kids are kind of getting their first social media accounts now, getting their phones. We do know a lot more about engagement, and they're certainly going to hear a lot more from uh, Dr. Rich. Like, there is so much compelling research about being engaged and having like, and we didn't know that. I feel like we were on the other side of it, Sue. I feel like we were like in it. Like, how many times have we said in our business, like walking on the bridge as we're building it, right? All those. I feel like that's where we were with social media. There's so much great information from Dr. Michael Rich. Up next is our conversation with him. We can't wait for you to join us. There is no hood like parenthood. When you meet a fellow parent, you just kind of get each other on a whole nother level. Hi, I'm Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm a former CNN journalist, mom of three, including twins, and host of That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast. I interview change makers on their life lessons, legacy, and superpower of intuition, aka their mom sense and dad sense. I've had some pretty amazing parents on my show. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Episodes release every Thursday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Join my tribe at thatstotalmomsense.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chanda Gupta. I'm thrilled to be on this journey with you. Dr. Michael Rich is the father of two teenage boys, an accomplished filmmaker and screenwriter, and a Harvard pediatrician at Boston Children's Hospital. Understanding the power of screens to engage, connect, and change us all, he translates authoritative, cutting-edge science into warm, plain-spoken advice on how to raise, teach, and care for children and adolescents. With Dr. Rich's guidance, we can use media as part of a balanced diet of experience to raise smarter, stronger, and kinder children in the digital age. Dr. Rich, thank you so much for being here with us. So we are talking about teens and technology, and it moves at such a rapid pace. So what I want to ask you is... What are you seeing right now? Has it changed much toward this kind of escaping from hopefully the COVID restrictions? Are you hearing about new problems from teens and their parents? Well, I think that things are changing quickly. One of the fortunate things is that kids change quickly too. Kids are remarkably resilient. I am seeing a sort of a delayed response in behavioral health issues. Kids who 
have functionally had three years since their last normal school year. So they have a three-year bite taken out of their childhood or adolescence, which is huge for them. And I am seeing a fair amount of kids who are having problems with interactive media use, kids uh, who get sucked into gaming, into social media, into pornography, and into what we're calling information binging, which is, you know, the endless Reddit, Quora, YouTube videos, etc. I think that we have to pay attention to that, not necessarily as a freestanding problem in itself, but as a manifestation of underlying issues they're struggling with, anxiety, depression, mood disorders of various kinds. So let's talk about parental controls, a space that our, our parents are very, very interested in. Are there circumstances when you do recommend monitoring? Well, I'm going to say something fairly controversial for those parents, and that is that I think that we've got to rethink the whole concept of parental controls, mainly because there's no kid on the face of the earth who wants to be controlled by their parents. Their entire task developmentally is to establish autonomy and independence. I think that we should change our nomenclature to parental engagement. We should turn it from parents blocking things, from parents controlling things, from parents prohibiting things, to parents mentoring their kids and how to effectively use these spaces. Using the spaces with the kids. Modeling for them how to use these spaces in ways that are responsible and respectful of themselves and and of others. And I think that getting the parent out of the police officer role and into the supporting success role is really, really important because if we are just policing them all the time, they will go underground. This is why Finstas are created. This is why kids have alternative ways to communicate with each other, not because they're bad kids, but because they're being blocked from things that they want to do and, frankly, need to learn to do in ways that are safe and healthy and responsible to others. Michael, I love that. That's such a great pivot and so in sync with how we talk about so many things in parenting. It feels so different. It feels so different and feels way more in sync with how we are raising our kids. Exactly. And what we know from a lot of parenting research and, frankly, from clinical experience is that authoritative parenting works. Authoritarian parenting does not. <laughs> authoritative parenting is knowing what the situation is, knowing what kids need, knowing what they need from us, knowing how they need to move into the next stage of development in terms of what they're capable of. Authoritarian parenting is the dictator. You know, why should I do this? Because I say so. Instead of, why should I do this? Because if you do it this way, people will respect you, will support you. And if you do it that way, people will, you know, reject you. I think that this is a, a really important thing around parenting in general, not just in the interactive media space, but really to come to your child with information, not orders. Um, come to your child listening and really hearing her or him when your child talks to you and responding on their grounds, in their way, in ways that they can really use. And so you're not saying, don't do this or you're a bad kid, because that's the forbidden fruit. 
You know, they're always going to want to test their limits, right? But if you say, here's what it is, and and here you can even say, look, I made that mistake when I was a kid, and here's what happened. Share knowledge, share experience. And yes, they're still going to try some stuff anyway. It's This isn't surefire, but it is really a way of sharing your knowledge with your kid without making it orders from on high. It's so aspirational when I hear you say that. And then there's this other side of life getting in the way from that really healthy approach to talking to our teens about tech. And I think some of the things that compete with it are, number one, our fear that something dangerous could happen. And I would also say there's a lot of judgment around what we do and don't do around with our kids in like in in kind of like spheres of parent co-parenting. So we've got both those things going on. And then this other idea that our kids sit and listen to us when we talk to them. And when we express our concerns and hear them, they abide by everything we say. And we just know that's not true. So whenever we have these conversations, at the end, someone says, but what monitoring device would you recommend? And I know where that's coming from because of these other competing issues that are going on. So how do we, when it's not working, when we're doing all the things you suggested and it's not working, what do we do? Well, I think, first of all, in my experience, when parents ask for a monitoring program or device, they actually don't follow through. They don't have the time or the energy to do the monitoring, but they feel good that there's something there, right? And they think that having that monitoring device is going to protect their kid. I think what is much more useful is when the child is introduced to a new device, a new platform, et cetera, to keep the communication door open and have with your child the agreement that you actually have access to their accounts, not just friending them, but really having passwords and access to their accounts. Not to be nosy, not to invade their privacy, but to help them understand and navigate in this space. Here's the problem. You know, kids will say, you know, from the time they're 10 or 11 or 12 on, I need my privacy. But when you actually talk to them about what privacy means, it usually means so mom and dad can't see or hear, right? It's not, they could care less or they can't even conceive of, you know, strangers seeing and hearing, and they don't really care either. And what I will often say to kids is is to use what I call the grandma rule. Don't put anything online that you don't want grandma to see because she can. Grandma relationships are very different than mom relationships, (laughs) right? And we want to look good for grandma. We want to be our best selves for grandma. Mom, less so, right? Mom (laughs) mom is kind of the, you know, the the occupying army. (laughs) And we're trying to figure out how to, you know, shake that off and and step out of their mom's shadow. But grandma, we really care about what, she thinks of us. So I think there's that. And and I think the fact that you have access at random intervals to your child's account changes the child's behavior, much the way random drug testing in the workplace works, right? That it's not that you're going to catch every incident, but that you can. So you, you touched on gaming earlier, Michael. Can we talk about I would say gaming, too much screen time. How do you know if that is an addiction? You know, can it become an addiction? How would we define that? Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Well, you're now in my wheelhouse because we have for four and a half years now had, as far as I know, the only dedicated clinic at an academic medical center focused on interactive media and internet disorders. And some interesting things. First of all, let's start with the word addiction. Addiction is not a good model for what's going on. And I'll tell you why. Biomedical sense addiction is when you are using something that changes you in reproducible physiologic ways when you are using and especially when you're withdrawing from that use. Now, there's no question that kids have behavioral changes, but they're very different. The second is that you don't need that substance. You don't need nicotine or opioids or, or alcohol to survive. Unfortunately, or fortunately, in this 21st century world, you need interactive media to survive. You need it to study. You need it to work. You need it to communicate. You need it to entertain yourself. And so the final thing is with addiction, the therapeutic goal is abstinence from the use of that substance or that behavior. We can't do that. You can't do that with interactive media, not today. So we actually see this more akin to binge eating disorder overuse of a necessary resource that continues despite negative consequences, that is driven by underlying psychological struggles, and ultimately abstinence is not the solution, but self-regulation is. We have yet to see, in the hundreds of kids we've seen at CIMAID, the Clinic for Interactive Media and Internet Disorders, is we have yet to see a kid who does not have some underlying driver of these behaviors. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is huge among kids who have gaming issues. Because if you think of it, ADHD is actually adaptive for a gaming environment. You want to be hypervigilant. You want to be distractible. You want to be able to react reflexively to things. This was actually an adaptive skill when we were hunter-gatherers and we crawled out of the cave in the morning seeking our food and seeking not to become someone else's food. And then you take that and you plop it down in a classroom and say, sit down, shut up, and listen to the person talking in the front. And it's maladaptive. We see in kids who struggle with social media a lot of anxiety, social anxiety in particular. So what we are seeing is that there are, in every case we've seen so far, underlying issues that if you address correctly and treat correctly, allow the behaviors to subside. So we actually see problematic interactive media use as a syndrome or collection of symptoms, manifestations of these underlying processes that are basically blossoming in the interactive media space. It's kind of interesting because, you know, these deep dives that you can take into any kind of platform it's set up to keep you there, right? And so for most of us, it's hard to pull us up, ourselves out of it. But you do see, even in, in different siblings, that some kids can and some kids can't. And so what you're saying is there's a reason why. It's not lack of discipline or bad behavior. There's actually some other reason why they can't pull themselves away. So is that an indication to you that if you've got that kid, you should be diving deeper than just trying to set a, you know, a, an incentive chart. Does that give you reason to look, to look at this kid, to pause for a second and say, I'm not going to change this behavior with stars? What we're dealing with here is what B.F. Skinner discovered is variable reward system. 
A variable reward system is exactly what happens in a casino when you are playing blackjack or the roulette wheel. The way a variable reward system works is that it gives you a win sometimes, it gives you a near win a lot of times, and rarely gives you a big win. But what it does is it means that each time you engage with it, you never know what the outcome's going to be, and you're always hopeful that it's going to be better. This is exactly what is, as you say correctly, designed into games in particular, designed into a lot of interactive websites. But by human nature, is actually also functioning in social media when you post a picture of yourself in your new outfit and then you wait to see how many likes you get, how quickly you get them. Worst of all, not getting any response at all. And so you keep trying. And so human nature in response to what you've posted sets up a variable reward system also. I think that if we understand that, as with, say, gambling, there are people who are more susceptible to that, who are less self-aware. Unfortunately, it often, you know, in the cases of things like scratch tickets and lotteries, it often taxes the least, you know, able of us all in terms of finances because it's selling you hope. This is an issue that if you understand how it works, you can take a step back, but you're right, absolutely. You're going to have different kids who are differently susceptible to these things. What about, and especially in the COVID environment, where we've had kids who are online all day, how much is too much and how do we set limits? Okay, I'll say something else controversial to follow up my parental controls controversy. I think the concept of screen time limits is obsolete. That comes out of the era of television. For the most part, screens were purely entertainment and diversion, not productive. We now live in a space where, first of all, there are screens in virtually every environment we're in. We have them in our pockets. We have them on our wrists. Some people have them in their eyeglasses. We have them everywhere. And so the concept of even measuring screen time is off the charts, you know? I mean, I study this stuff and I don't, I don't know how much screen time I spend. I think what we have to look at is not too much in terms of duration, but what are they not doing because they're on screens? How is it displacing important things such as sleep, homework, family time, sit-down family meal every day is the single most important thing you can do, not just for their nutrition, but for their mental health. And a favorite of mine, let's bring back boredom. Because boredom is where creativity and imagination take place. We have such an aversion to boredom that we can't get onto an elevator or get into a bus without pulling out our smartphones. And we are basically defaulting our brains and our attention to whatever drivel is there, whatever sucks us in, right? Instead of looking up and seeing the world, seeing each other, and interacting with our fellow humans. I was walking out of the hospital a while back, and at the end of a day, and there was a brilliant sunset, and everyone on the street was looking at their phones. Not a person saw it. That's kind of tragic. It's not that what they were doing on their phones was bad, but it was not giving them the opportunity to experience something that may have been much greater. And so... I think that it's it, what we should be looking at is not screen time, 
but non-screen time. And we should build in non-screen time into our lives, times when we can look at each other, talk to each other, laugh with each other, sleep, do homework, and frankly, be bored and think something new instead of defaulting to someone else's silly idea. So since you said it a few minutes ago, I've been mulling over this idea of an aversion to boredom. Because I understand what you're saying. I think we all have the aversion to boredom. But sometimes, maybe in my childhood or when the phone is down, I solve the boredom with creativity. But if I have the phone in my hand, I almost can't. Like if I go on a hike with my family, I have to leave my phone in the car. But how do we get teenagers to understand, you know, presumably that pull is so strong There's something about it that like the minute you're antsy or in a social situation where you're a little uncomfortable, right? Like you pull out your phone as like a, it's almost like armor. How do we get our kids to think of it differently, to do, to behave differently around that? Well, first of all, your point that it's almost like armor is direct, is right on, right? It is that this device, which is designed for near infinite connectivity, is actually eroding our connectedness with each other because we put it between us. Instead of using it to connect us, we use it to block each other. Here's the one thing that I found with teenagers time and again. They don't want anybody controlling them. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. When you let them know that they are giving away their attention, giving away their thoughts, giving away their eyeballs to people who spend billions of dollars to grab and hold them, and you say, think about this. Are you happy with that? Are you happy with giving that away? And what do you have to show for it at the end of this session of Candy Crush or of, you know, a Snapchat streak or something of that nature? What do you have to show for that? Is is showing a picture of your big toe every day for 428 days to your friend, is that enhancing your friendship? Or is that you being manipulated into being on this platform and to spending some of your precious time? And that's why I talk a lot to them about using the interactive media space with respect, not just for others, but for yourself. Value yourself enough to not give that away without, you know, making sure that it's giving you something back. And on a very, you know, direct level, especially for kids who are, you know, flirting by way of social media, et cetera, is I talk to them about when they're wanting to get together with a friend or a romantic partner or whatever, always think about upgrading by one. If they're thinking of tweeting text, if they're thinking of texting call, if they're thinking of calling, get together in person. Yeah, but upgrading by one, that's excellent. I love yeah. that. Yeah. We fear being seen as awkward or weird or whatever enough that we actually resist intimacy. But intimacy is actually what is the good stuff of relationships, where you are taking risks, where you are taking the chance of being seen as awkward and realizing that this person likes you anyway. <laughs> Okay, so this is so interesting. And in, in my, like, for years, we had experts telling us that if your kid was misusing the phone, take it away. And it wasn't like, it did kind of get couched in a natural consequence. And then all of a sudden, somewhere, that story changed. And we would ask an expert, 
you know, how do you deal with a kid who's abusing the phone? You just take it away, right? And it was like, oh, no, 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 don't take their phone away. So where do you stand on that? I think it depends on what's going on. The reason that that paradigm shifted to a certain degree is that kids have developed such an intense use of sort of the constant contact by by phone as a measure of their relationships, as a way of connecting with each other. This is a struggle we have in the emergency department in our hospital, which is if a kid is coming in and they've gotten in trouble either with cyberbullying or with um, depression and suicidality, they take the phone away. But then this kid is sitting there completely cut off from their whole support system. How do we manage that? And I think, quite honestly, our strategies around this are still evolving, to be perfectly honest. And I think that almost on a case-by-case basis, you've got to look at how they are misusing the phone rather than having a blanket, a blanket, it's got to be taken away. There are still certain circumstances where it needs to be taken away. If it's being used to threaten them, if it's being used to coerce them and they are susceptible to that, then in some ways it's helpful In other cases, it may be that they need to use it in a much more monitored environment. They need to use it with an adult nearby or with an adult able to access what they're doing. There isn't a clear, easy answer to this. It really is more what is going on and will taking the phone away actually put a fence in place that helps the child or not? We have to look at guardrails, basically. They're going to drive, but what guardrails need to be in place? And if a guardrail of not having a phone is best, that's fine, but judge that for what it is. Or it might be taking certain applications, certain platforms off their phone, but doing it with the child. In other words, If you're doing it to the child, they'll always figure a workaround. We'll never keep up with that. But you have to do it with them. And oftentimes when they are feeling vulnerable, they will actually be honest with you and say, you know, every time I hear that ping happen, I've got to check it. And when I check it, it makes me feel bad. One of the things about phones, and this is a little bit off the mark, but it may be really helpful in this case, is we all talk about FOMO fear of missing out. Kids have another layer, and that's faux blow, fear of being left out, fear that they are going to be out of the conversation in their friend group, in their school, in their community. This is why they feel tied to their phones all the time, because they also put a lot of gravitas to how quickly who responds to what. In other words, oh my God, you took 17 seconds to respond to my text. You must not love me as much as you did before. That's why they keep those phones nearby overnight, for example, so they can get that all-important WTF at three in the morning and respond to it. I think we have to take a step back and look at these as the power tools that they are and take control of them instead of letting them and our sort of social expectations control us. All right, so if we can't take it away or if removing certain apps doesn't, you know, quite do the trick, what can we do to impact behavior? What are the alternatives? Okay, it sort of depends on why you feel you can't take it away or you can't take apps off. But all that being said is the more that we can both model 
mentor and monitor behavior, sort of the three M's that I use, the better. In other words, we need to be parroting them in the digital space actively rather than sort of saying, oh, I, I don't quite understand that or if it takes too much time or whatever, as long as they're not selling drugs or having sex, I'm okay. And I think we've got to be much more present in our young people's worlds. We also have to understand that For them, there's no such thing as online and offline. It is one environment that they move seamlessly in. And we need to be there for them in that sense. We need to be both modeling for them and helping them adhere to the same standards in the digital space as in physical space. Now, that being said, again, it comes back to a case-by-case basis of what you do. But I think as an overriding kind of principle, it is to share the responsibility for what is done in the online space with the young person, giving them as much autonomy as they are able to take on and as they are able to handle responsibly. And frankly, parenting a teenager in the digital space or not, is a lot like walking a dog with a leash, right? That when they want to run a little more freely, you give them a little leash, but you also see what they do. And if they get out of control, you pull back on the leash and and you bring them in closer. This is an ongoing process with adolescents, which is give them the freedom that they want, but help them understand with extra freedom comes extra responsibility. And if that responsibility is not met, freedom gets pulled back. We've been talking a lot about communication, right? And have and being able to mentor them and model for them as we think about safety. So your kid sees something online, right? Someone's going to self-harm. How do we have that trust with our kids? How do we create that space where they see something that they can come to you as the parent, that we are a safe place for this. And then what do we do with that information? This is a matter of establishing from the beginning and constantly reiterating that we are part of their digital world. In other words, instead of saying, turn off Call of Duty, I hate it when you play Call of Duty, and making it a bad thing, sit down with them and play Call of Duty with them. Even though you hate it, and even though they will be much better at it than you are, what you're doing when you say that is, I love you, I respect you, I want to understand what engages you here. Then you can have that conversation about why is this something you want to rehearse over and over and over again? Is this a skill set you see yourself using? You know, then the kids have much more sense because you're coming to them as their student, not as, you know, a, you know, disciplinarian wagging a finger. You're sort of saying, help me understand it. We have to understand that these kids don't have full executive functions yet, and they won't have them until their mid to late 20s. They don't have impulse control. They don't have that kind of future thinking, cause and effect. And they are really programmed to push the limits of the envelope. The problem is they don't understand where the envelope is. We need to be a part of their digital lives from the get-go. We need to help them understand that what they do in that space will last essentially forever, that what they post will go far, will go fast, and will be sticky. Somewhere, someone will have it, and that there are implications to that. And so the most important thing here is to keep the door open, to make yourself a safe place, 
in the case of someone who is self-harming, let them know that if they see something that confuses them, that weirds them out, that scares them, that A, you're always available. It's sort of like telling a kid who's going to a high school party, look, if you get drunk, don't drive home. I'm not going to be mad at you for drinking. I don't want you dying in the, behind the wheel of the car. It's that sort of a thing saying, look, I know this goes on. I'm trusting you to take charge and to and behave effectively in that space. And we'll talk later about what the consequences should be. I think one of the real issues in the area you're talking about with self-harm is that kids often feel that they can handle it. Kids feel that they can just talk to their friend and everything will be fine. And I think that if you can teach them from early on that there are certain things that really need a professional to handle, that really need, you know, a a therapist, really need a psychiatrist, really need a primary care doctor to talk them through, and that much as they want to help their friend, they don't have the skill set to really help their friend. So what helping looks like is getting them to the kind of care they need. Okay, I'm going to say that this is really hard stuff and that it would be so nice to be told by you that this is how you take care of all these things. And, you know, after this lengthy conversation with you, it's clear that it's just hard work. So I want to offer up one question to parents who are listening. What do kids tell you that we're doing correctly, that we're doing well, that they appreciate? Absolutely. And and here's the other thing that brings to mind a question I often ask my patients when their parents are out of the room. And that is, what do you wish your parents did better? Interestingly, one of the most prevalent, probably three quarters of the time, the first thing out of their mouths is pay more attention to me. Listen to me, see me, hear me. Now, when you talk to the parents, they say, this kid never talks to me. This kid never tells me what's going on. So there is a disconnect there between the parent's perception of the kid and what they do is when the kid says nothing or just grumbles or grunts, they say, oh, I don't want to invade their privacy, right? Um, I don't want to, you know, get in their face. And they let it drop. Whereas the kid really wants to say something, may not know it and may not know how to do it. And so it's easier to just grunt and hope that the parent will go away. But if the parent keeps gently pushing the door open, not forcing them to walk through it, they will sometimes actually come out with it and develop a sense of trust that you're not there to police them, you're there to support them. And that's why this going back to the parental controls thing is that's why it's really good to try to move from the police role to the supporter of success role. Okay, Michael, we're going to wrap up with the question we ask all of our guests. What is the biggest myth about teenagers? That they don't care about what other people are doing. They don't care about the world. They don't care. They care so intensely that oftentimes they are flooded. And so it comes out as if they are disconnected, if they are, as if they are withdrawn. They deeply care about not just how they are perceived or their relationships, but also how the world works. This past couple of years of pandemic, I've seen kids go into really deep existential angst about where is the world going? You know, climate change, pandemic, a really divided 
country and divided politics, divided families. We see from the outside maybe that they seem shut down when in fact they are hurting confused, and they desperately want someone to put their shoulder against the door and push it open so that it feels safe for them to share and to ask for help. Dr. Michael Rich, thank you so much. This was really helpful. Lots of work. You put a lot of work on us, but thank you so much. (laughs) Uh, Well, parroting is more of an art than a science. It can be guided by science, but Here's the deal. Because it's an art, we're all going to do it differently, and we need to do it differently for different children, even in the same family. We should recognize right up front that we're not going to do it perfectly. We can't hold ourselves to perfect standards. (laughs) Right? We can't hold ourselves to perfect standards. So we should start by forgiving ourselves in advance. And just because we can't do it perfectly doesn't mean we can't keep perfecting it. Thanks for joining us for the Your Teen Podcast. If you have any topics that you want us to talk about, let us know on our Facebook page or email editor at yourteenmag.com. If you're someone who reads an article and thinks of that one friend who has to read it too, think of our Please share with that friend who's going to say, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't know about Your Teen with Sue and Steph. And do us a favor and review and rate the show on the podcast platform of your choice. You can find more from us at yourteenmag.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your Team with Sue and Steph is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producer Michael D'Aloya, plus producer Hannah Leach and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. We'll see you next time. Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 